This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. By the time I met Marvin Lawless for the first time, I'd already investigated his daughter's death for about three years. He didn't know that I'd been to her grave several times and that I'd been interviewing people once very close to his daughter's murder suspects. The basics of his daughter's murder had been told several times before. I didn't want to approach him until I had new information, something I could actually share with him. I'd been told he wasn't much into talking with the media. But every time I take the Benton exit, I look for the flowers attached to the stop sign where Michelle lost her life. I know that Michelle's father has been there leaving a reminder so that no one who passes by that stop sign forgets what happened. When I go to a grave, it's always decorated for the season. That attention, plus the silence, speaks to the loss her family endures to this day. I never met Michelle. I didn't move to this state until after her murder, but she was only a couple of years older than I was. I jammed to the music tapes that were found in her car. I cruised the strip just like she did, only in a different town. I didn't know Michelle, but she went to a school about the same size that I went to. Walking into Marvin Lawless's office was another moment when Michelle's story felt so much more than a story. I did not go there to interview Mr. Lawless, but as I was preparing to go public with a podcast and a book, I wanted to approach him, to look him in the eye, to let him know the information that I'd gathered, the clues that I'd found. I felt he deserved to hear these things before the public did, and I wanted to give him the opportunity to participate if he chose to. Months earlier, I had stopped at Michelle's mother's house, Esther. I had a specific question for her, which she answered. But she didn't want to talk that day, so I gave her my name and my number. She thanked me for coming, but I didn't hear back from her. The Lawless family pretty much stopped getting involved with the media after a couple of national true crime TV shows profiled Michelle's case. The family's been dragged through so much drama over the years, they don't enjoy reliving the trauma or being in the spotlight. Mr. Lawless owns a business that sells storage buildings. His property is immaculate. His office is tidy. He's decorated his office with photos of his family. There are photos of Michelle's brother and sister, now adults, along with grandchildren. Michelle's photos are still of her as a teenager. The family has already been through so much. They've cooperated with the media many times before. Old newspaper articles from 1992 and 1993 quoted Marvin Lawless. Some of his opinions quoted in articles back then are very relevant. Early on in the investigation, the sheriff thought Michelle might have been killed by a random murderer. Marvin never bought into that, and he told the reporter as much. Mr. Lawless and I had a conversation. I wasn't taking notes. I wasn't there for an interview, but I felt the hurt. Mr. Lawless is still angry, angry as hell that his daughter is gone. And that grief still burns hot right below the surface. He has little faith that his daughter will ever get justice. He has little faith in law enforcement. He has even less use for the media. While there, he googled his daughter's name. He showed me all the results. There are hundreds of thousands of them. He feels his daughter has been used for hits to drive advertising revenue. I understand where he's coming from. 
I told him that's not why I started my journey into his daughter's story. But I was frank that I did hope to earn compensation for the work that I've done now that I've done it. He asked me questions, personal questions, and I answered them. I told him what I was there to do, to look him in the eyes, to shake his hand, to tell him some things that I've found. But I mostly listened. Listening to a father voice his frustration over the death of his daughter is a hard thing to hear. But I needed to hear it. Mr. Lawless's grief hits home. I now have a child older than Michelle was in 1992. I told him I'd send an email with bullet points of what I'd found. I told him if he wanted to do an interview, I was up for that. If not, that was okay too. A day later, he responded to my email and his response was so eloquent. This is what he wrote. Quote, I truly appreciate your pursuit of truth and justice in our eternal quest to reveal same. It is my prayer that those who have withheld knowledge or were in fact witness to this thing will step up and make it right even now. It's never too late to make this right. Perhaps where the system of justice has failed at so many junctures and by so many trusted officials at various level of governance, we the people under God's hand will keep on until justice in Michelle's case is finally accomplished. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Kevin relayed to me. He said uh, Bill told him that he was the number one suspect in the Lawless case and that I, Rick Walter, was after him. But he came to me and told me he was going to do it, that he took care of Michelle Lawless. Yeah. What he meant by that, I don't know. Did he shoot her? Did he have somebody do it? Or was he there? I don't know. He didn't say. Yeah. If you recall, we ended the first episode with the first interview that Mark Abbott gave. Deputy Tom Beardsley conducted that interview. In that interview, you'll recall, Mark said this. Did she make it? No. Who was she? Michelle Lawless. From Benton? Marvin Lawless's daughter. Was she right in the head? Her head was just covered with blood. You know, you could tell she... I'll be damned. I thought she was like an out-of-state person. She was 19. I knew she was young, just a little bitty girl. I picked her up real easy. God damn. Now, Mark didn't explicitly say in that interview he did not know Michelle Lawless, but he made that claim in other interviews and testimony. If you listen closely, however, and with proper context, Mark left clues in that interview that he did know who she was. Basic Detective 101 would dictate that as you begin an investigation, there are two people you have to eliminate as suspects at the very beginning. One is the person who discovered the body, that is Mark Abbott. The other person is the one last known to see her alive, that is a boy named Leon Lamb. I realize many of you listening to this podcast are perhaps hearing about this case for the first time. Please understand that I'm telling this story with nearly 30 years of backstory. Most of what I've told you to date is information already in the public record in some fashion or another, whether court records or media reports. So I need for you to understand just for a moment that Mark Abbott is a suspect now as I tell this story in 2021. That's not just my intuition. That's from many sources, 
some who have testified to as much under oath. We will get into the reasons why Mark Abbott is a suspect in future episodes. But at the beginning, Mark Abbott was treated as a witness. Leon Lamb was treated as a suspect. Again, I'll get into more of this detail as we go along. But for now, I want to say Leon Lamb's story has never changed. Mark Abbott's story has changed many times. Details are coming, I promise. So as I started driving into this case, knowing all the context I know, learning a lot more as I went along, I wanted to start with the statement that Mark Abbott did not know Michelle Lawless. In order to do this investigation justice, we have to understand the dynamics of Michelle's personal life. This is the cost of trying to uncover the truth. We're going to be talking about some things that are normally private. You have to know who the victim knows. You have to know the tension points that point to motive. Most of the information about her love life has already come out publicly in court. My hope is that I can present some of these scenarios with the appropriate sensitivity that Michelle is due. Law enforcement, as far as I can tell, did not eliminate Mark Abbott as a suspect. They know he was at Country Night's bar before he interacted with Michelle's body. But there is no airtight alibi that would eliminate him. I mean, he literally told a friend he had blood on his hands. Any investigation should start there. And that's where Beardsley started. Now, the best place to look for possible suspects would be Michelle's diary. I obtained a copy of that diary. Most of Michelle's entries were simple day-to-day -day interactions. She wrote often and fondly, for the most part, of her family. She wrote about shopping trips to Cape, lunches with friends and her mother, and she kept things very vague. The diary starts on the first day of 1992 and continues until just a few days before her murder. Her diary tells of several different love interests. I'm happy to report Michelle did not write in detail about her intimate life. She mentioned dating boys, staying with them. She loved on occasion. But I want to make it clear that I'm not casting any judgment upon Michelle. She was 19 years old, a young adult free to make her own decisions about whom to see and whom to date. Michelle was flirtatious and a social butterfly. She liked to party. Her nightlife habits were getting more adventurous. But there doesn't appear to be much that suggests that she was living dangerously. There's no evidence, based on investigative reports and autopsy records, that she was into hard drugs. Michelle was being pulled in many different directions. Her life reflected this. While she may have been pulling an all-nighter every now and then, she also made time to be generous and caring. You know, she went to church on Sundays and sometimes Wednesdays. She sang with her father at church. She had solid, clean-cut friends who adored her. She had a family that supported her. She was loved, and she loved many. Her main love was a boy named Leon Lamb. Leon was the one she wanted to be with full-time. They dated seriously for two or three years before breaking things off. But they'd rekindle the flame off and on in the months following the breakup. So for the better part of the diary, Michelle describes her longing for Leon. She practiced karate with him, and Leon was strong and tough. Michelle was outgoing, pretty, and sometimes feisty. And sometimes, as is so typical of young relationships, there was drama. They moved apart, but they kept in touch. Michelle was jealous that Leon was seeing girls. Leon was jealous that she was seeing other boys. They were attracted to each other, and they cared about one another, even if they were seeing other people. There's no denying that Michelle and Leon Lamb were intimate friends. 
When Michelle was heading home that night, she was coming from Leon Lamb's house. They just made love. She kissed him goodnight. She left her button flies undone. She carried her shoes to the car and left toward home. Leon Lamb was the last person to admit seeing her alive. But what does the diary say about the man who found her? Did she know Mark Abbott? The answer to that question is complicated. She mentioned a boy named Mark on four different occasions in her diary. In this episode, we will go over those entries. Here is her first entry. July 2nd, 1992. Put money in the bank and got a new outfit. Spend a night at Laura's. Went and saw Jocko and went to Crackle. Met a guy named Mark. Got stuck in Cape. Our telephone pole was on fire when we went back for house. It's been storming. Okay, so let's break down this entry. She met a guy named Jocko and Mark at a place called the Purple Crackle. I found Jocko. Man, it took a while. But I found him. Jocko is his nickname. His real name is Mark. But clearly Michelle was talking about someone else named Mark. It's one of the many confusing things about this case. Jocko was a member of the Sigma Tau fraternity, a group of boys that Michelle partied with at college from time to time. By 92, Jocko was tending bar at the Crackle. The Purple Crackle was a nightclub with a long history. Decades prior, it was a swanky joint that had connections to the Southern Illinois Mafia, of which Mark Abbott's grandfather played a role as a repairman for slot machines. The slot machines were illegal, but he also worked on other coin-operated machines like pinball. By the time 1992 rolled around, however, the Purple Crackle was a nightclub for college-age kids. It was one of the few bars or clubs in the area that allowed 18-year-olds to enter. Mark Abbott had privileges there. His father, Larry Abbott, was friends with the owner, Bud Pierce. Pierce ran a lot of illegal gambling activities that included businessmen, farmers, politicians, and judges. As for Jocko, he says he doesn't remember Michelle, other than the news coverage from her murder. He said he knew Mark Abbott by reputation. August 6th. Went to work. Went to Crackle. Took Mark and Jocko home. Kissed and he asked me out. Went back to Crackle and then went home. So she mentioned Jocko and Mark again. She took them home. Then she kissed and he asked her out. She didn't specify who she kissed and which one asked her out. But context of subsequent entries suggests it was Mark. She doesn't mention Jocko again after this entry. I was really hoping Jocko would remember something about this night. It could be a major break if a witness remembered Michelle being with a suspect who had denied knowing her. But Jocko said he didn't remember this at all. In fact, Jocko said he knew Mark and insisted he would not get in a car with him. It should be noted Michelle doesn't say she took both men home at the same time. The drive from the Crackle just across the river to downtown Cape Girardeau only takes a minute or two. One report I found associated with the murder case suggested it was determined that this Mark in the diary was a member of the Sigma Tau fraternity. I asked Jocko and others about the guy's name Mark from the fraternity, and I got several names. I reached out to them one by one. None of them remembered dating or kissing Michelle and only knew her name from news reports. August 9th. Didn't get up for work, but Terry called and said I didn't have to come in. Drove to Van Buren, waited, went to Jolly Cone, spotlighted, jogged, and ate cake, having fun, and found guys I want to meet. Okay, so this entry doesn't mention anyone by name, but I find the date and descriptions fascinating. 
This entry is from three days after Mark kissed her and asked her out. It's a Sunday. She overslept and called into work, and her boss Terry said she didn't need to come in. I got a hold of Terry. She told me Sundays were busy days at Shoney's. That's where Michelle worked as a waitress in the city of Sykeston, just 15 minutes or so from Michelle's house in Benton. Terry told me Michelle was a good waitress, but she was becoming less reliable in the months before her death. She said she told lots of crazy stories. She'd been in a couple of car wrecks, for example. Terry also told me that Michelle said she found the Abbott boys attractive. She doesn't remember much beyond that. Mark Abbott denies knowing Michelle, but Michelle knew him. That detail is confirmed by two other sources, both friends of Michelle's that I talked to. Now remember, this entry was on August 9th. Again, just three days after kissing a boy named Mark and him asking her out. She skipped work and made the two-hour drive to Van Buren to have fun on the current river in the middle of the Ozarks. She said she spotlighted and ate cake. She was having fun and saw guys she wanted to meet. Three days after kissing Mark, she ate cake and had a blast with some guys on Current River. The date was August 9th, which happens to be Mark and Matt Abbott's birthday. I need to pause here to give you an update. It's an editor's note. Several months before I went public with the podcast, I had stopped at the residence of Esther Lawless, one, to let her know what I was working on, and two, to ask her a question. The question I asked her was about Van Buren, specifically on August 9th, and whether she remembered Michelle and the family going on a float trip. Esther told me at that time it was fairly common for the family to take camping trips back in those days, but she said she had no memory of anything specific on that date or that summer. Michelle's birthday is August 2nd. After this podcast episode aired, Esther dug through some old VHS tapes. She found an old homemade video of Michelle eating cake on her birthday, which was August 2nd, and another one of her and the entire family enjoying time on the current river on August 9th. In the August 2nd clip, in which she could be seen blowing out candles and cracking jokes with her family, she mentioned that she had gotten off work for the upcoming camping trip. It's still possible that she called into work on that one particular Sunday and was planning on joining her family later. But the idea that unbeknownst to her family, she took off to Van Buren to meet with a bunch of boys is not a correct interpretation of this particular diary entry. She still said she saw guys she wanted to meet. It was still the Abbott twins' birthday. But as a matter of transparency, I wanted to bring forward this new evidence which offers new context to this particular entry. I want to thank Esther for inviting me into her home where she showed me this video, and we talked for more than two hours about her daughter and the investigation. August 30th, went to work. After, came home and practiced with Dad. We sang tonight at church. Took Mickey cake and Lauren rode with me to Mark's to give him his. Said she was mine. Went back to Mickey's and played D&D. Came home. Mickey was a friend of Michelle's. Mickey lived in the trailer court just behind the trailer sales lot, just right across the road, pretty much, from where Michelle lived. Mickey also worked with Michelle at Shoney's. After attending church, Michelle dropped off cake at Mickey's, then took Mark his. It took me a while to figure this out, but it was Mickey's daughter, Lauren, who was only three or four years old back then, who rode with Michelle to Mark's. I'm fascinated by what Michelle meant by said she was mine. Was she talking about Lauren? What's the significance of that? 
Of all of the details in her life that she omitted from her diary, why would she include that detail? Said she was mine. I honestly don't know. Was she claiming that Laura was her child? Or was she writing shorthand that Mark said she, Michelle, was his? Either is possible, I suppose. If she was looking for a reaction, she didn't express it in the diary. If she was excited about something, she didn't say so. Again, I'm confused as to why she would put this phrase stated this way with no context or explanation. Michelle was intentionally vague when writing her diary, as if the details of her life were too personal to relive or if she was afraid the diary might end up in the wrong hands. She never once mentioned Mark's last name. She didn't tell her friends details about dating Mark. Her family didn't know about a Mark. When Michelle's friends were interviewed in the days and weeks after the murder, they knew all the boys Michelle had been dating. But no one mentioned Mark. Was she keeping this relationship a secret? At the time, Mark Abbott was seeing someone. It took me a couple of months to finally talk to Mickey. When I reached her, she broke down in tears. She lives in a different state now. She said Michelle was a good friend to her. Mickey left the area not long after the murder, left her husband, and began a life with a different man. She said she was lured away by wanting to go to California to a concert. She packed up her car in the middle of the night, took Lauren, and fled the area. I asked Mickey if there was any drug activity going around that trailer court behind the sales lot. That's information that kind of came up later. She told me she didn't know. She said she stayed busy working and caring for her daughter. I tried to pull information out of Mickey. She said she was so upset because she couldn't remember the details from that long ago. She said she was upset because if she'd been asked these questions by police back then, she could have answered them more completely. But I don't know. I asked her specifically if she remembered Michelle talking about dating Mark. She said no. I followed up with her by text later after hearing from Terry that she was talking about the twins. When I asked her if Michelle ever talked about twins or being attracted to twins, Mickey said, yes. She followed that by saying that's all she knew. And she stopped responding to my messages after that. September 3rd, went to class in Taekwondo. Laura worked out, left and went to Mark's in Crackle. Got into it with Natalie in and Michelle in. Said I was with Derek A last night. Laughed at him. Saw Dana, she got kicked out. Stayed at Mark's. Stayed at Mark's. Obviously, the last couple of seconds there is the most important. Stayed at Mark's. This would be the last time Michelle mentioned Mark in her diary. It was September 3rd, which is a little over two months before her murder. So we know that Michelle met a boy named Mark at the Purple Crackle. We know about a month later she knew Mark well enough to take him home, where he kissed and asked her out. Three days following that kiss, she skipped work went on a two-hour drive to the river where she had cake and saw boys she wanted to meet. Later, she took cake to Mark with the young preschool girl with her, and she wrote, said she was mine. And lastly, she stayed at Mark's. I know from three sources, all friends of Michelle's, that she was either attracted to the twins or she stated she was going to go out with them. Many years later, one of Michelle's friends went on national television stating Michelle had stated she was going to see Mark Abbott and the friend told her to stay away from those Abbott boys because they were nothing but trouble. This particular friend did not mention this at the time of the murder, but she wasn't sought out by police and interviewed either. 
In a fourth source, a woman once close to Matt Abbott, speaking only on the condition of anonymity, told me that Matt Abbott once said that he knew Michelle had stayed overnight once at his brother's trailer. Now let's tackle the clues that Mark Abbott left in his interview with Chief Deputy Tom Beardsley. Remember, we reenacted this for you in the first episode. If you can think of anything else, give us a call, will you? I sure will. Did she make it? No. Who was she? Michelle Wallace. From Benton? Marvin Lawless's daughter. Her head was just covered with blood. You know, you could tell she... I'll be damned. I thought she was like an out-of-state person. She was 19. I knew she was young. Just a... Did you catch that? When Beardsley shared the name, Mark said, quote, from Benton, unquote. What was meant by that question? Does this turn of phrase indicate that Mark Abbott knew Michelle was from Benton? Because he followed that question from Benton before he shared that he thought the victim was from out of state. So if Mark Abbott was assuming the victim was from out of state, why did he ask, quote, from Benton, unquote, when given Michelle's name? This suggests, but certainly doesn't prove, that he was familiar with the victim. Now here's another clip from that same interview. Was the motor running? I think so. The interior light was on. The lights was just bright as hell. The headlights, the, the parking lights, if it... Wasn't for the rings and stuff on her hand. I seen the rings on her hand, you know. You couldn't even tell it wasn't a girl. She was in bad shape. If you recall, I mentioned in the first episode that investigators found no rings on Michelle's fingers. Michelle typically wore four or five rings, including a class ring, according to her friends. Not only did investigators find no rings on Michelle's fingers, her rings were found in the console of her car between her seats. There were seven of them. Now let me ask you a question. If a person you knew wore seven rings, would you remember that about them? What conclusion can we draw from this statement? Why would Mark state the only reason he knew at first that the victim was female was from her rings? And why would he state something that clearly wasn't true? Right from the beginning, Mark Abbott made two statements that proved to be false. The window of Michelle's car was not rolled all the way down and Michelle was not wearing rings. Did Mark know that Michelle regularly wore rings and used that to fill in a hole in his statement? At the time of the murder, she was not wearing rings. So let me reiterate just for a minute here. Mark Abbott asked, without prompting, if Michelle Lawless was from Benton. And he said he only knew the victim was female from the rings on the victim's fingers. Rings that the victim was not wearing. So remember what I'm trying to do here at the beginning. I'm trying to find out whether Mark Abbott's statement that he didn't know Michelle Lawless holds up. Now, it's my belief that Michelle was keeping her relationship with a guy named Mark secret from her friends. She had confided in them that she thought the trends were attractive, and one friend warned against her seeing those Abbott boys. Maybe she was keeping this relationship secret because Mark Abbott was already seeing someone else. In fact, he was seeing the sister of a man named Kevin Williams, who's another suspect in the murder. Now, none of Michelle's friends knew that she was dating anyone named Mark. Whether that was Mark Abbott or any handful of Marks associated with Sigma Tau or the Purple Crackle, no one knew anything about Mark. 
Now, this was odd because Michelle told friends about all the other guys she dated. They told police like all the names that Michelle wrote in the diary, but no one knew about any Mark. They didn't know about a Mark whom she'd kissed and stayed the night with. Now, Michelle's best friend among her Sykeston circle was Lilisha Odell. Odell spent the night cruising with Michelle the night that Michelle died, so she was questioned multiple times about Michelle's murder. On November 18, 1992, 10 days after the murder, Missouri Highway Patrol investigator Don Windham, who had been assigned to assist the Scott County Sheriff's Department, interviewed Odell at her residence. On the second page of this investigative report, Wyndham wrote the following, quote, Odell said they never went out with anyone they didn't know. Lawless did go out with a few guys in Cape Girardeau that Odell didn't know, but Lawless did. She said one guy wanted to go out with her that drives a little black truck, but she didn't know who it was. Mark Abbott drove a black Chevy S10. A little black truck. This is all circumstantial, taken individually. But taken collectively, it's compelling evidence that Mark Abbott, at the very least, knew Michelle Lawless. The diary I examined was a copy, not the original. Each page had the space for four entries. So one page could contain space for eight entries total when you count front and back. It was part of the court file. The original, secured by law enforcement and later sent to the FBI for analysis, was burned by her father after it was returned to him by police. He couldn't bear to read it. It was an act of loyalty to his daughter. It turns out that if Michelle was worried about her parents finding out and reading her diary, those concerns were unwarranted. At the time, Marvin Lawless had full trust in the Sheriff's Department to use whatever was in his daughter's diary, if anything to find and bring charges to his daughter's killer. It's time for a programming break. We're proud to present this podcast for free wherever you can find podcasts. But we need your support in order to keep moving forward. This work we do comes at a cost both in time and in funds. Please go to thelawlessfiles.com to subscribe. This is not only how you can show appreciation for the work we've done, but also how you get way more access and analysis about this case. Subscribers can get access to all sorts of materials. Go and look for the blog titled, Michelle's Diary Revisited, Four Entries of a Boy Named Mark. There you can find images of Michelle's handwriting and a deeper analysis into what she divulged and speculation as to why she left certain things out. You can also find things like a timeline and bonus episodes such as full interviews with Josh Kieser, Rick Walter, and more. So go check it out, subscribe, support our efforts, and dive in. We think you'll really come to understand why we just couldn't let this case go. Now, before we return to the episode, I'd like to say that all this work is done in memory of Michelle Lawless, who lost her life and voice on November 8, 1992. The work is dedicated to the many abused women who are connected to the characters in this story and shared their experiences with us. You won't hear all their names, but we honor them for their courage and thank them for their trust. So let's take a step back for a minute and just think about what investigators knew. Two officers, Deputy Drury and Newman, had stated in their notes that Matt Abbott had reported the crime that night at the county jail. In fact, it was Matt Abbott, 
not Mark, who reported her dead and shot before officers at the scene were able to determine that a bullet had ended her life. They knew that the Abbott twin had returned to the crime scene after being told to go home. They knew Abbott didn't go home. They knew he wasn't at home the morning following the murder. They knew there was a Mark mentioned in her diary four times. They knew Mark Abbott had falsely stated there were rings on Michelle's fingers. They knew Mark Abbott had falsely stated that the window was all the way down so that he could get his chest into the window to pull Michelle up by her shoulder. Within 10 days of the murder, they knew that some boy she dated in Cape drove a little black truck. There is more that they knew, which we will get into in the next episode, but the point is that there was plenty of evidence in the hands of law enforcement for them to look suspiciously on Mark Abbott. But I want to state emphatically here that there are a lot of reasons others were considered suspects as well. This is not a simple story. Mark Abbott is not the only suspect in this murder. Now it's time to look at what Michelle's diary says about some of these other names. Two weeks after mentioning Mark for the last time in her diary, Michelle started seeing a boy named Lyle Day. Day, according to an investigative report associated with the murder investigation, had been arrested on drug distribution charges in June of 1992. He'd also been involved in a serious car crash and had a difficult recovery that left him with a permanent limp. The wreck impaired his mental acuity also. He and Michelle became acquainted at the tanning salon called TNT. It was owned by a couple named Scott and Tammy Stone. Sometimes Scott went by Andy. Day told police he, quote, worked, unquote, voluntarily at the salon while on disability, cleaning and wiping down beds in exchange for tanning privileges. Both Day and Stone have been in trouble with the law for drug-related charges over the years. Michelle also wrote about attending a handful of Sigma Tau parties. She mentioned in one entry that a boy named Red brought two G's to the party. Increasingly, people involved with drugs were entering Michelle's circle of friends. She was so close to Day and the Stones that she told them she had been sexually abused by a cousin when she was younger. Her first mention of Lyle Day was on September 15th, which was two weeks after her last entry on Mark Abbott, less than two months before her murder. On October 7th, Michelle had some sort of date with a boy named Guy, whom she snuggled and called Gorgeous. On October 8th, Michelle met her mother for lunch hungover, but she was able to keep her headache hidden. On October 9th, she was, quote, kidnapped by Lyle and went cruising with him. For some background context, about this time, she and her friend Lalisha were looking for a trailer to rent together. October 22nd, went to class, ate lunch with mom, came home and ate with dad, talked to Lyle and he hurt my feelings, got ready at trailer and cruised with Chantel and Lalisha, stopped by Leon's, loved, came to trailer. October 29th, crackling got to Laura's late, 5.30. Oops, had fun though. October 31st, slept late, got things situated and went and got rest of stuff, went and got Lalisha and Chantel, glittered ourselves. Mom and Aunt Sheila gave me trick-or-treats. Went to John Morley's party. Lalisha left and came back. Drank and flirted and stuff. Todd Mayberry liked me. When we left, kissed almost everyone. Took Lalisha home and Chantel and I snuck out and went to McDonald's and cruised. Couldn't find Lyle, so went home to Chantel's. November 4th. Lyle being a butt. Went to school and Leon gave me money. Later went over. Loved and left. 
Jim got pulled over trying to catch me. Came home and talked to Lyle, still being a butt, so I didn't tell him. Now these entries are immensely important when looking at the murder case that would eventually be brought against Josh Keezer. First, they show an uneven relationship with Lyle Day. There were more entries than just the ones you heard, but Michelle liked Lyle a lot. She really did. But on November 4th, just four days before her murder, Lyle was, quote, being a butt, unquote, so, quote, I didn't tell him, unquote. This reinforces my belief that Michelle was being intentionally vague with her diary. What was Lyle being a butt about, and what didn't she tell him? The diary is incredibly frustrating for someone looking for clues into her murder. We would learn in the days following Michelle's death that she believed she was pregnant. Multiple witnesses, including Lyle Day himself, told police that Michelle and Day fought over this perceived pregnancy. Day told her he was not ready to be a father and offered to pay for an abortion. Michelle told him she would not have an abortion. Now let's consider the reality of this situation for just a moment. And this is uncomfortable territory, but a topic I only bring up because it potentially points to motive. On September 3rd, Michelle wrote in her diary that she stayed at Mark's. In early November, just days before she was killed, Michelle believed she was pregnant. Michelle met Lyle Day in mid-September. It stands to reason that if Michelle had sexual relations with Mark when she spent the night at his house on September 3rd, that means Mark was potentially in the paternity conversation. Now, the autopsy showed that Michelle was not pregnant when she was killed. In year three of my investigation of this murder, my focus turned toward a potential link between Mark Abbott and Lyle Day. Documents I have show they may have been at the same party on the night of November 7th. They had similar friends and both had connections to the TNT tanning salon. We'll get into that in future episodes. So thanks to Michelle's diary and her own words, we have some names. We have a Mark with no last name. We have Lyle, whose last name is Day. We have Leon Lamb, the last person to admit seeing Michelle alive. There were several other boys' names, too. But there was another name Michelle mentioned in the entries you just heard who is extremely important. His name was Todd Mayberry. It was Halloween night, 1992, just one week before Michelle's life would be taken from her. She was at a party. Todd Mayberry kissed her and liked her. It was one of the few last names that she included in her diary, and it was right there, in her own handwriting, in a book in possession of the police and the prosecutors. Todd Mayberry had nothing at all to do with Michelle's death, okay? But he had a lot to do with why Josh Keezer was wrongly convicted. So yes, we have names. There's a Mark, there's a Lyle, there's a Leon, there's Todd. She dated a guy named Guy a guy named Jim and another named Jeremy. She dated the guys she liked and as vague as Michelle might have been, she included their names in ink in her personal journal. As I've said earlier, I've read every single entry in that diary multiple times and there is one very important name that is missing. That name is Josh. It's nowhere to be found. Now is the time in the podcast where we get to hear from Josh a man nowhere in her diary, the man nowhere in Missouri on the night Michelle was left dead on the exit ramp. My name's Josh Keezer. Uh, my last name is spelled K-E-Z-E-R. I'm 46 years old. When I was 18, I was arrested and charged 
with the murder of Angela Michelle Wallace. I was convicted when I was 19 and then sent to prison for 16 years and exonerated when I was 34. We have spent the first episode and a half visiting the first tragedy of this murder. In this episode thus far, we have talked about Michelle's personal history. Before she started writing her diary, Michelle had a traditional rural Missouri upbringing. She was a member of the Girl Scouts. She spent a lot of time at church, the oldest daughter of two married parents, the oldest sister to a younger brother and sister. She was being pulled in a lot of directions, school, parties, work, church, karate, tanning. She was an all-American girl. And in some ways, this is also an all-American tragedy, a story of wrongful conviction all too common in the United States justice system. Michelle's murder brought about many victims. Her family was left dealing with the excruciating and enduring loss of their Michelle. Her friends were victims, obviously. Nieces would never know their aunt. And there were indirect victims of those who would be later harmed by Michelle's killers. A murder, especially one with no justice, leaves ripples of pain and a trail of victims. But aside from Michelle, the other well-known victim of this case is Josh Kieser. You can't separate the stories of Michelle Lawless and Josh Kieser. They were in no way connected prior to 1993, but their stories became forever intersected at Interstate 55 and Highway 77. Josh Kieser lost 16 years of freedom to Michelle's murder. And much like it's important to understand who Michelle was and who she knew, it's also important to understand who Josh is and was. Josh's life was less traditional, but just as American. His upbringing was more difficult. With the examination of Michelle's diary, we are trying to understand what history she had with the major players of the case and who may have had reason to kill her. It turns out that Josh has a history with one of the major characters in this story too, though he didn't know it at the time. He was just a boy and his mother was just trying to find the best place in life for her son. So here's Josh Kieser, an exonerated man, disclosing that story. And to really understand me is to understand that I was the son of Bessie Joan Kieser and Charlie Kieser, that my parents were divorced, that I was raised in a broken home, but that both of them, in their own way, did the best they could. I was born in Kankakee, Illinois. Majority of my life, I was raised by a single mother. Um, the process of raising me, she went to college and she studied psychology and, and criminal justice. She was an artist. And that was the atmosphere that I was raised in as a kid. Um, we lived in a few trailers when I was younger. That was the best she can do. And when I was a kid, living in a trailer was the equivalent of living in an apartment today. It wasn't yet considered trailer trash. My mother and I went through some hard times, um, some tough spots when I was a kid. And we lived in and out of the ghetto. She did her best. And my father, for all his shortcomings when I was younger, did his best to, to raise a good son. My mother and I, we lived in Kankakee. 
and my mother and I lived there until uh, I believe I was 10 or 11 and we moved to Southeast Missouri to take care of my great grandfather and my mother wanted to start over. She wanted to take her son out of the ghetto and start over. So she moved me to Southeast Missouri to um, a little town that consisted of, what was it, like three or four houses just outside of Delta. It was in between Delta and Advance. It was very, very new to me. Uh, the, the whole the whole experience was, was a culture shock. Um, it's where I really began to learn about my family. I you know, was raised around my grandparents and my cousins and my aunts when we lived in Kankakee because pretty much the whole family had relocated to Kankakee at one point. But um, moving in with my great-grandfather took me to where my family was from. And it was an eye-opener. It was very difficult for me when I was a kid to live there because I, I went to school in Delta. I told my mom we had to move. We had to leave. I couldn't go to school in Delta because I was a little boy and I was just discovering girls. And every girl I spoke to um, was my second or third or fourth cousin. <laughs> I couldn't. I can't do it, Mom. I can't. You know, uh, we got to leave. So she 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 thought that was funny, but she agreed. Uh, you know, <laughs> your boy's discovering girls. He can't go discovering family. And so she moved me to Chaffee in Scott County, Missouri. You know, we, we, she entered me into, uh, sixth grade. We moved there. We moved there that summer before sixth grade. Uh, and, uh, my mother and I decided it wasn't a good idea for us to live there, um, because it felt like we were outsiders. And that's when my mother met Sheriff Bill Farrell. And she was scared of him and wanted to get as far away from him as possible while still keeping us in Southeast Missouri because she enjoyed Southeast Missouri, but she wanted to get out of Scott County and get away from Bill Farrell. Of course, I wasn't aware at the time, because I was a little boy, that she had had interactions with uh, Sheriff Bill Farrell. I discovered that years later, following my conviction. Can you can, can you talk a little bit more about what that interaction might have been? Yeah, and I believe that it needs to be um, spoken about because my mother unfortunately passed away this past October of COVID or COVID related illness. And she never really got a chance for one reason or another to tell her story. I believe that her story needs to be told. At the time we were living in Chaffee, my mother was a single mother and uh, she, she was bartender. She worked regularly at bars and um, worked at a, um, a place called the Hitchin Post in Cape Girada and had come into contact with a man there. 
and again to see him from time to time and he helped her with money and I'm not judging my mother and I would appreciate it if others um, didn't judge her when they hear this because she doesn't deserve that you know in the process of her um, getting to know him of course she got more familiar with his illegal activities the way I was told and I was told years later again while I was in prison I was in the old walls in Jeff City after my conviction, following my conviction, my mother came and visited me and she told me this story and she felt it must have been very difficult for her to tell me because she didn't, she, you can tell she wasn't comfortable and she didn't know how to tell me, but she did. Um, she had the courage to tell me this story. And she said that at one point in Chaffee that Farrell had um, brought her into the department and told her that he knew about this man trafficking some drugs. I believe at the time it, it might have been marijuana. I, I don't know. The, uh, the police were watching him, that Farrell was watching him, and that... Uh, he wanted her to help him set him up. And my mother didn't want to have, any, have anything to do with it. Um, it wasn't her business. It wasn't her problem. Um, she wasn't involved in it. She knew about it, but it wasn't her. You know, she wasn't involved. It wasn't her problem, so she didn't want to be involved. Farrell then told her that she would help him and that if she did not that he would take her son, that being me, and she would never see him again. So my mother being a mama bear and loving me very much and prioritizing me above this man, cooperated in the moment. I'm told that when the case went to court, uh, while she was on the stand, one of the attorneys in the room, I don't know if it was the defense attorney or the prosecuting attorney, whoever it was, um, questioned my mother about, you know, her involvement in the stink and in the setup. And my mother, being an intelligent woman and um, a college graduate at that point, she had an associate's degree. She's seen the opportunity to tell the truth. And she, in open court, testified about Farrell's threats. I guess the case was thrown out at that point. Farrell was irate. He was angry. He was visibly upset, my mother said. And she was, she was afraid to mention this the entire time I was in the county jail and facing trial. In her mind, she believed that Farrell was keeping his word. And she was scared that if she brought it up, that it would make him even more angry and that he would do even worse to me. She didn't believe that I would be convicted because she knew I was innocent. So she was trying to remain quiet about this and hoping that it would just all go away. It didn't. You know, I, I immediately had compassion for her 
when she told me, but I was still upset because I felt like that perhaps that could have helped um, people understand a little bit more if they wanted to understand when I was inside and that perhaps um, if the media was told about this story at the time that maybe the media at that time, maybe the Southeast Missourian at that time would have investigated that. But I also understood why she didn't. And I loved my mother very much. But, you know, I, you know, I guess that, you know, this story goes all the way back to then. And I, and, and it's the, really the first time that this is being told on a podcast or otherwise. We will learn more about Josh in future episodes. We'll learn more about how he became homeless for a time and how he bounced back and forth between Southeast Missouri and Northern Illinois. At the time of Michelle's murder, no one in Michelle's orbit knew anything about him. But here the public is learning for the first time that Josh's mother had a history with a man who would lead the investigation into Michelle's murder and the investigation into her son. Bill Farrell had a history with a lot of people. We'll get into some of that history in the podcast, but I'll get to even more of that history in my book. Bill Farrell was the sheriff of Scott County. He became sheriff in 1977 and left office in 2004. He won seven county elections as a Democrat. He wore a white cowboy hat. He competed in rodeos. He formed a sheriff's horse posse and led trail rides. He was president of the Sheriff's Association and started the SEMO Drug Task Force. He was the epitome of a country sheriff. I don't want to leave you with the impression that I have evidence that Josh's mother's experience with Sheriff Farrell has a direct connection with Michelle's murder investigation. No evidence that I've seen indicates such. I just learned about this history late into my investigation. But here's what I do know. Joni Keezer feared Bill Farrell. She feared what the man could do to her son. In the course of this podcast, you'll find out that Joni Keezer's fears were justified. You're listening to The Lawless Files. The Lawless Files is a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. It is written and produced by Bob Miller. Post-production and music by Tyler Grafe. Special thanks go to our transcript readers, Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Laura Ritter, Shawnee Graves, MJ DeGraff, and Bobby Clubs, as well as to Southeast Missouri State University for the use of their recording studios. Next time on The Lawless Files. Then later, uh, Mark gave a statement that said that he was at the payphone and his car pulled up. I believe he said it was a white car, and it was a black guy in it, and his name was Ray Ring. He knew Ray Ring because Ray Ring was uh, supposedly sold drugs in Sykeston, and so he named Ray Ring as being...